Preface and Introductory of the Seven Lamps of Architecture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Todd Albrick. The Seven Lamps of Architecture by John Ruskin. Preface. The memoranda which forms the basis of the following essay have been thrown together during the preparation of one of the sections of the third volume of Modern Painters. Footnote. The inordinate delay in the appearance of that supplementary volume has, indeed, been chiefly owing to the necessity under which the writer felt himself of obtaining as many memoranda as possible of medieval buildings in Italy and Normandy, now in process of destruction, before that destruction should be consummated by the restorer or revolutionist. His whole time has been lately occupied in taking drawings from one side of buildings of which masons were knocking down the other, nor can he yet pledge himself to any time for the publication of the conclusion of modern painters. He can only promise that its delay shall not be owing to any indolence on his part. End of footnote. I once thought of giving them a more expanded form, but their utility, such as it may be, would probably be diminished by farther delay in their publication more than it would be increased by greater care in their arrangement. Obtained in every case by personal observation, there may be among them some details valuable even to the experienced architect. But with respect to the opinions founded upon them, I must be prepared to bear the charge of impertinence, which can hardly but attach to the writer who assumes a dogmatical tone in speaking of an art he has never practiced. There are, however, cases in which men feel too keenly to be silent, and perhaps too strongly to be wrong. I have been forced into this impertinence, and have suffered too much from the destruction or neglect of the architecture I best loved, and from the erection of that which I cannot love, to reason cautiously respecting the modesty of my opposition to the principles which have induced the scorn of the one, or directed the design of the other and I have been the less careful to modify the confidence of my statements of principles, because in the midst of the opposition and uncertainty of our architectural systems, it seems to me that there is something grateful in any positive opinion, though in many points wrong, as even weeds are useful that grow on a bank of sand. Every apology is, however, due to the reader for the hasty and imperfect execution of the plates. Having much more serious work in hand, and desiring merely to render them illustrative of my meaning, I have sometimes very completely failed even of that humble aim, and the text, being generally written before the illustration was completed, sometimes naively describes as sublime or beautiful features which the plate represents by a blot. I shall be grateful if the reader will in such cases refer the expressions of praise to the architecture and not to the illustration. So far, however, as their coarseness and rudeness admit, the plates are valuable, being either copies of memoranda made upon the spot, or, plates 9 and 11, enlarged and adapted from daguerreotypes taken under my own superintendence. Unfortunately, the great distance from the ground of the window, which is the subject of plate 9, renders even the daguerreotype indistinct, and I cannot answer for the accuracy of any of the mosaic details more especially of those which surround the window, and which I rather imagine in the original to be sculptured in relief. The general proportions are, however, studiously preserved, 
the spirals of the shafts are counted, and the effect of the whole is as near that of the thing itself as is necessary for the purposes of illustration for which the plate is given. For the accuracy of the rest I can answer even to the cracks in the stones and the number of them, and, though the looseness of the drawing and the picturesque character which is necessarily given by an endeavour to draw old buildings as they actually appear, may perhaps diminish their credit for architectural veracity, they will do so unjustly. The system of lettering adopted in the few instances in which sections have been given appears somewhat obscure in the references, but it is convenient upon the whole. The line which marks the direction of any section is noted, if the section be symmetrical by a single letter, and the section itself by the same letter with a line over it. But if the section be unsymmetrical, its direction is noted by two letters at its extremities, and the actual section by the same letters with lines over them at the corresponding extremities. The reader will perhaps be surprised by the small number of buildings to which reference has been made. But it is to be remembered that the following chapters pretend only to be a statement of principles, illustrated each by one or two examples, not an essay on European architecture. And those examples I have generally taken either from the buildings which I love best, or from the schools of architecture which, it appeared to me, have been less carefully described than they deserved. I could as fully, though not with the accuracy and certainty derived from personal observation, have illustrated the principles subsequently advanced from the architecture of Egypt, India, or Spain, as from that to which the reader will find his attention chiefly directed, the Italian Romanesque and Gothic. But my affections, as well as my experience, led me to that line of richly varied and magnificently intellectual schools which reaches like a high watershed of Christian architecture from the Adriatic to the Northumbrian seas, bordered by the impure schools of Spain on the one hand and of Germany on the other. And as culminating points and centres of this chain, I have considered first the cities of the Valdarno as representing the Italian Romanesque and pure Italian Gothic, Venice and Verona as representing the Italian Gothic coloured by Byzantine elements, and Rouen with the associated Norman cities, Caen, Bayeux, and Coutances, as representing the entire range of northern architecture from the Romanesque to Flamboyant. I could have wished to have given more examples from our early English Gothic, but I have always found it impossible to work in the cold interiors of our cathedrals, while the daily services, lamps, and fumigation of those upon the continent render them perfectly safe. In the course of the last summer I undertook a pilgrimage to the English shrines, and began with Salisbury, where the consequence of a few days' work was a state of weakened health, which I may be permitted to name among the causes of the slightness and imperfection of the present essay. INTRODUCTORY Some years ago, in conversation with an artist whose works perhaps alone in the present day unite perfection of drawing with resplendence of colour, the writer made some inquiry respecting the general means by which this latter quality was most easily to be obtained. The reply was as concise as it was comprehensive. Know what you have to do, and do it. Comprehensive not only as regarded the branch of art to which it temporarily applied, but as expressing the great principle of success in every direction of human effort. For I believe that failure is less frequently attributable to either insufficiency of means or impatience of labour, 
than to a confused understanding of the thing actually to be done. And therefore, while it is properly a subject of ridicule, and sometimes of blame, that men propose to themselves a perfection of any kind, which reason, temperately consulted, might have shown to be impossible with the means at their command, it is a more dangerous error to permit the consideration of means to interfere with our conception, or, as it is not impossible, even hinder our acknowledgment of goodness and perfection in themselves. And this is the more cautiously to be remembered, because while a man's sense and conscience, aided by revelation, are always enough, if earnestly directed, to enable him to discover what is right, neither his sense, nor conscience, nor feeling are ever enough, because they are not intended, to determine for him what is possible. He knows neither his own strength, nor that of his fellows, neither the exact dependence to be placed on his allies, nor resistance to be expected from his opponents. These are questions respecting which passion may warp his conclusions, and ignorance must limit them. But it is his own fault if either interfere with the apprehension of duty, or the acknowledgment of right. And as far as I have taken cognizance of the causes of the many failures to which the efforts of intelligent men are liable, more especially in matters political, they seem to me more largely to spring from this single error than from all others, that the inquiry into the doubtful and in some sort inexplicable relations of capability, chance, resistance, and inconvenience invariably precedes, even if it do not altogether supersede, the determination of what is absolutely desirable and just. Nor is it any wonder that sometimes the too cold calculation of our powers should reconcile us too easily to our shortcomings, and even lead us into the fatal error of supposing that our conjectural utmost is in itself well, or, in other words, that the necessity of offences renders them inoffensive. What is true of human polity seems to me not less so of the distinctively political art of architecture. I have long felt convinced of the necessity, in order to its progress, of some determined effort to extricate from the confused mass of partial traditions and dogmata with which it has become encumbered during imperfect or restricted practice, those large principles of right which are applicable to every stage and style of it. Uniting the technical and imaginative elements as essentially as humanity does soul and body, it shows the same infirmly balanced liability to the prevalence of the lower part over the higher, to the interference of the constructive with the purity and simplicity of the reflective element. This tendency, like every other form of materialism, is increasing with the advance of the age, and the only laws which resist it, based upon partial precedence, and already regarded with disrespect as decrepit, if not with defiance as tyrannical, are evidently inapplicable to the new forms and functions of the art, which the necessities of the day demand. How many these necessities may become cannot be conjectured. They rise, strange and impatient, out of every modern shadow of change. How far it may be possible to meet them without a sacrifice of the essential characters of architectural art cannot be determined by specific calculation or observance. There is no law, no principle, based on past practice, which may not be overthrown in a moment by the arising of a new condition or the invention of a new material. 
and the most rational if not the only mode of averting the danger of an utter dissolution of all that is systematic and consistent in our practice or of ancient authority in our judgment is to cease for a little while our endeavours to deal with the multiplying host of particular abuses restraints or requirements and endeavour to determine as the guides of every effort some constant general and irrefragable laws of right laws which based upon man's nature not upon his knowledge may possess so far the unchangeableness of the one as that neither the increase nor imperfection of the other may be able to assault or invalidate them there are perhaps no such laws peculiar to any one art their range necessarily includes the entire horizon of man's action but they have modified forms and operations belonging to each of his pursuits and the extent of their authority cannot surely be considered as a diminution of its weight those peculiar aspects of them which belong to the first of the arts i have endeavoured to trace in the following pages and since if truly stated they must necessarily be not only safeguards against every form of error but sources of every measure of success i do not think that i claim too much for them in calling them the lamps of architecture nor that it is indolence in endeavouring to ascertain the true nature and nobility of their fire to refuse to enter into any curious or special questioning of the innumerable hindrances by which their light has been too often distorted or overpowered had this farther examination been attempted the work would have become certainly more invidious and perhaps less useful as liable to errors which are avoided by the present simplicity of its plan simple though it may be its extent is too great to admit of any adequate accomplishment unless by a devotion of time which the writer did not feel justified in withdrawing from branches of inquiry in which the prosecution of works already undertaken has engaged him both arrangements and nomenclature are those of convenience rather than of system the one is arbitrary and the other illogical nor is it pretended that all or even the greater number of the principles necessary to the well-being of the art are included in the inquiry many however of considerable importance will be found to develop themselves incidentally from those more specially brought forward graver apology is necessary for an apparently graver fault it has been just said that there is no branch of human work whose constant laws have not close analogy with those which govern every other mode of man's exertion but more than this exactly as we reduce to greater simplicity and surety any one group of these practical laws we shall find them passing the mere condition of connection or analogy and becoming the actual expression of some ultimate nerve or fibre of the mighty laws which govern the moral world however mean or inconsiderable the act there is something in the well-doing of it which has fellowship with the noblest forms of manly virtue and the truth decision and temperance which we reverently regard as honourable conditions of the spiritual being have a representative or derivative influence over the works of the hand the movements of the frame and the action of the intellect and as thus every action down even to the drawing of a line or utterance of a syllable is capable of a peculiar dignity in the manner of it which we sometimes express by saying it is truly done as a line or tone is true so also it is capable of dignity still higher in the motive of it for there is no action so slight nor so mean 
but it may be done to a great purpose and ennobled therefore nor is any purpose so great but that slight actions may help it and may be so done as to help it much most especially that chief of all purposes the pleasing of god hence george herbert a servant with this clause makes drudgery divine who sweeps a room as for thy laws makes that and the action fine therefore in the pressing or recommending of any act or manner of acting we have choice of two separate lines of argument one based on representation of the expediency or inherent value of the work which is often small and always disputable the other based on proofs of its relations to the higher orders of human virtue and of its acceptableness so far as it goes to him who is the origin of virtue the former is commonly the more persuasive method the latter assuredly the more conclusive only it is liable to give offence as if there were irreverence in adducing considerations so weighty in treating subjects of small temporal importance i believe however that no error is more thoughtless than this we treat god with irreverence by banishing him from our thoughts not by referring to his will on slight occasions his is not the finite authority or intelligence which cannot be troubled with small things there is nothing so small but that we may honour god by asking his guidance of it or insult him by taking it into our own hands and what is true of the deity is equally true of his revelation we use it most reverently when most habitually our insolence is in ever acting without reference to it our true honouring of it is in its universal application i have been blamed for the familiar introduction of its sacred words i am grieved to have given pain by so doing but my excuse must be my wish that those words were made the ground of every argument and the test of every action we have them not often enough on our lips nor deeply enough in our memories nor loyally enough in our lives the snow the vapour and the stormy wind fulfil his word are our acts and thoughts lighter and wilder than these that we should forget it i have therefore ventured at the risk of giving to some passages the appearance of irreverence to take the higher line of argument wherever it appeared clearly traceable and this i would ask the reader especially to observe not merely because i think it the best mode of reaching ultimate truth still less because i think the subject of more importance than many others but because every subject should surely at a period like the present be taken up in this spirit or not at all the aspect of the years that approach us is as solemn as it is full of mystery and the weight of evil against which we have to contend is increasing like the letting out of water it is no time for the idleness of metaphysics or the entertainment of the arts the blasphemies of the earth are sounding louder and its miseries heaped heavier every day and if in the midst of the exertion which every good man is called upon to put forth for their repression or relief it is lawful to ask for a thought for a moment for a lifting of the finger in any direction but that of the immediate and overwhelming need it is at least incumbent upon us to approach the questions in which we would engage him in the spirit which has become the habit of his mind and in the hope that neither his zeal nor his usefulness may be checked by the withdrawal of an hour 
which has shown him how even those things which seemed mechanical, indifferent, or contemptible, depend for their perfection upon the acknowledgment of the sacred principles of faith, truth, and obedience, for which it has become the occupation of his life to contend. End of Preface and Introductory Recording by Todd Albrecht